Chapter 33 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years' Recollections of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum, Chapter 33, Richards Himself Again. In 1859, I returned to the United States. During my last visit abroad, I had secured many novelties for the museum, including the albino family, which I engaged at Amsterdam, and Theoden's mechanical theater, which I found at Southampton, beside purchasing many curiosities. These things all afforded me a liberal commission, and thus, by constant and earnest effort, I made much money, besides what I derived from the Tom Thumb exhibitions, my lectures, and other enterprises. All of this money, as well as my wife's income and a considerable sum raised by selling a portion of her property, was faithfully devoted to the one great object of my life at that period, my extrication from those crushing clock debts. I worked and I saved. When my wife and youngest daughter were not boarding in Bridgeport, they lived frugally in the suburbs, in a small one-story house which was hired at the rate of $150 a year. I had now been struggling about four years with the difficulties of my one great financial mistake, and the end still seemed to be far off. I felt that the land purchased by my wife in East Bridgeport at the assignee's sale would, after a while, increase rapidly in value, and on the strength of this expectation, more money was borrowed for the sake of taking up the clock notes, and some of the East Bridgeport property was sold in single lots, the proceeds going to the same object. At last, in March 1860, all the clock indebtedness was satisfactorily extinguished, excepting some $20,000 which I had bound myself to take up within a certain number of months, my friend, James D. Johnson, guaranteeing my bond to that effect. Mr. Johnson was by far the most effective agent in working me through these clock troubles, and in aiding to bring them to a successful conclusion. Another man, however, who pretended to be my friend, and whom I liberally paid to assist in bringing me out of my difficulties, gained my confidence, possessed himself of a complete knowledge of the situation of my affairs, and then coolly proposed to Mr. Johnson to counteract all my efforts to get out of debt, and to divide between them what could be got out of my estate. Failing in this, the scoundrel, taking advantage of the confidence reposed in him, slightly arranged with the owners of clock notes to hold on to them, and share with him whatever they might gain by adopting his advice he assuming that he knew all my secrets, and that I would soon come out all right again. Thus I had to contend with foes from within, as well as without, but the spotting of this traitor was worth something, for it opened my eyes in relation to former transactions in which I had entrusted large sums of money to his hands, and it put me on guard for the future. But I bear no malice towards him, I only pity him as I do any man who knows so little of the true road to contentment and happiness as to think that it lies in the direction of dishonesty. I need not dwell upon the details of what I suffered from the doings of those heartless, unscrupulous men who fatten upon the misfortunes of others. It is enough to say that I triumphed over them and all my troubles. I was once more a free man. At last I was able to make proclamation that Richards himself again that Barnum was once more on his feet. The museum had not flourished greatly in the hands of Messrs. Greenwood and Butler, and so, when I was free, I was quite willing to take back the property upon terms that were entirely satisfactory to them. I had once retired from the establishment a man of independent fortune. I was now ready to return, 
to make, if possible, another fortune. On the 17th of March, 1860, Messrs. Butler and Greenwood signed an agreement to sell and deliver to me on the following Saturday, March 24th, their goodwill and entire interest in the museum collection. This fact was thoroughly circulated, and it was everywhere announced in blazing posters, place cards, and advertisements which were headed, Barnum on his feet again. It was furthermore stated that the museum would be closed, March 24th, for one week for repairs and general renovation, to be reopened, March 31st under the management and proprietorship of its original owner. It was also announced that on the night of closing I would address the audience from the stage. The American Museum, decorated on that occasion as on holidays, with a brilliant display of flags and banners, was filled to its utmost capacity, and I experienced profound delight at seeing hundreds of old friends of both sexes in the audience. I lacked but four months of being fifty years of age, but I felt all the vigor and ambition that fired me when I first took possession of the premises twenty years before, and I was confident that the various experiences of that score of years would be valuable to me in my second effort to secure an independence. At the rising of the curtain, and before the play commenced, I stepped on the stage and was received by the large and brilliant audience with an enthusiasm far surpassing anything of the kind I had ever experienced or witnessed in a public career of a quarter of a century. Indeed, this tremendous demonstration nearly broke me down, and my voice faltered and tears came to my eyes as I thought of this magnificent conclusion to the trials and struggles of the past four years. Recovering myself, however, I bowed my grateful acknowledgments for the reception and addressed the audience as follows. Ladies and gentlemen, I should be more or less than human if I could meet this unexpected an overwhelming testimonial at your hands without the deepest emotion. My own personal connection with the museum is now resumed, and I avail myself of the circumstance to say why it is so. Never did I feel stronger in my worldly prosperity than in September 1855. Three months later I was so deeply embarrassed that I felt certain of nothing except the uncertainty of everything. A combination of singular efforts and circumstances tempted me to put faith in a certain clock manufacturing company, and I placed my signature to papers which ultimately broke me down. After nearly five years of hard struggle to keep my head above water, I have touched bottom at last, and here, tonight, I am happy to announce that I have waited ashore. Every clock debt of which I have any knowledge has been provided for. Perhaps, after the troubles and turmoils I have experienced, I should feel no desire to re-engage in the excitements of business, but a man like myself, less than fifty years of age, and enjoying robust health, is scarcely old enough to be embalmed and put in a glass case in the museum as one of its million of curiosities. It is better to wear out than rust out. Besides, if a man of active temperament is not busy, he is apt to get into mischief, to avoid evil, therefore, and since business activity is a necessity of my nature, here I am, once more, in the museum, and among those with whom I have been so long and so pleasantly identified. I am confident of a cordial welcome, and hence feel some claim to your indulgence while I briefly allude to the means of my present deliverance from utter financial ruin. Need I say, in the first place, that I am somewhat indebted to the forbearance of generous creditors. In the next place, 
permit me to speak of sympathizing friends, whose volunteered loans and exertions vastly aided my rescue. When my day of sorrow came, I first paid or secured every debt I owed of a personal nature. This done, I felt bound in honor to give up all of my property that remained towards liquidating my clock debts. I placed it in the hands of trustees and receivers for the benefit of all the clock creditors. But at the forced sale of my Connecticut real estate, there was a purchaser behind the screen of whom the world had little knowledge. In the day of my prosperity, I made over to my wife much valuable property, including the lease of this museum building, a lease then having about 22 years to run, and enhanced in value to more than double its original worth. I sold the museum collection to Messrs. Greenwood and Butler, subject to my wife's separate interest in the lease, and she has received more than $80,000 over and above the sums paid to the owners of the building. Instead of selfishly applying this amount to private purposes, my family lived with a due regard to economy, and the savings, strictly belonging to my wife, were devoted to buying in portions of my estate at the assignee's sales, and to purchasing clock notes bearing my endorsements. The Christian name of my wife is Charity. I may well acknowledge, therefore, that I am not only a proper subject of charity, but that without charity I am nothing. But, ladies and gentlemen, while charity thus labored in my behalf, faith and hope were not idle. I have been anything but indolent during the last four years, driven from pillar to post and annoyed beyond description by all sorts of legal claims and writs. I was perusing protests and summonses by day, and dreaming of clocks run down by night. My head was ever whizzing with dislocated cogwheels and broken mainsprings. My whole mind, and my credit, was running upon tick, and everything pressing on me like a dead weight. In this state of affairs I felt that I was of no use on this side of the Atlantic. So, giving the pendulum a swing, and seizing time by the forelock, I went to Europe. There I furtively pulled the wires of several exhibitions, among which that of Tom Thumb may be mentioned for example. I managed a variety of musical and commercial speculations in Great Britain, Germany, and Holland. These enterprises, together with the net profits of my public lectures, enabled me to remit large sums to confidential agents for the purchase of my obligations. In this manner, I quietly extinguished, little by little, every dollar of my clock liabilities. I could not have achieved this difficult feat, however, without the able assistance of enthusiastic friends and among the chief of them let me gratefully acknowledge the invaluable services of Mr. James D. Johnson, a gentleman of wealth in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Other gentlemen have been generous with me. Some have loaned me large sums, without security, and have placed me under obligations which must ever command my honest gratitude. But Mr. Johnson has been a friend indeed, for he has been truly a friend in need. You must not infer from what I have said that I have completely recovered from the stunning blow to which I was subjected four years ago. I have lost more in the way of tens of thousands, yes, hundreds of thousands, than I care to remember. A valuable portion of my real estate in Connecticut, however, has been preserved, and as I feel all the ardor of twenty years ago, and the prospect here is so flattering, my heart is animated with the hope of ultimately, by enterprise and activity, obliterating unpleasant reminiscences, and retrieving the losses of the past. Experience, too, has taught me not only that even in the matter of money, 
enough is as good as a feast, but that there are, in this world, some things vastly better than the almighty dollar. Possibly I may contemplate, at times, the painful day when I say, Othello's occupation's gone, but I shall more frequently cherish the memory of this moment, when I am permitted to announce that Richard's himself again. Many people have wondered that a man considered so acute as myself should have been deluded into embarrassments like mine, and not a few have declared, in short meter, that Barnum was a fool. I can only reply that I never made pretensions to the sharpness of a pawnbroker, and I hope I shall never so entirely lose confidence in human nature as to consider every man a scamp by instinct or a rogue by necessity. It is better to be deceived sometimes than to distrust always, says Lord Bacon, and I agree with him. Experience is said to be a hard schoolmaster, but I should be sorry to feel that this great lesson in adversity has not brought forth fruits of some value. I needed the discipline this tribulation has given me, and I really feel, after all, that this, like many other apparent evils, was only a blessing in disguise. Indeed, I may mention that the very clock factory which I built in Bridgeport, for the purpose of bringing hundreds of workmen to that city, has been purchased and quadrupled in size by the Wheeler and Wilson Sewing Machine Company, and is now filled with intelligent New England mechanics, whose families add 2,000 to the population, and who are doing a great work in building up and beautifying that flourishing city. So that the same concern which prostrated me seems destined as a most important agent towards my recuperation. I am certain that the popular sympathy has been with me from the beginning, and this, together with a consciousness of rectitude, is more than an offset to all the vicissitudes to which I have been subjected. In conclusion, I beg to assure you and the public that my chief pleasure, while health and strength are spared me, will be to cater for your and their healthy amusement and instruction. In future, such capabilities as I possess will be devoted to the maintenance of this museum as a popular place of family resort, in which all that is novel and interesting shall be gathered from the four quarters of the globe, and which ladies and children may visit at all times unattended without danger of encountering anything of an objectionable nature. The dramas introduced in the lecture room will never contain a profane expression or a vulgar allusion. On the contrary, their tendency will always be to encourage virtue and frown upon vice. I have established connections in Europe which will enable me to produce here a succession of interesting novelties otherwise inaccessible. Although I shall be personally present much of the time, and hope to meet many of my old acquaintances as well as to form many new ones, I am sure you will be glad to learn that I have re-secured the services of one of the late proprietors and the active manager of this museum, Mr. John Greenwood, Jr., as he is a modest gentleman who would be the last to praise himself, allow me to add that he is one to whose successful qualities as a caterer for the popular entertainments the crowds that have often filled this building may well bear testimony. But, more than this, he is the unobtrusive one to whose integrity, diligence, and devotion I owe much of my present position of self-congratulation. Mr. Greenwood will hereafter act as assistant manager, while his late co-partner, Mr. Butler, has engaged in another branch of business. Once more, thanking you all for your kind welcome. I bid you, till the reopening, an affectionate adieu. This off-hand speech was received with almost tumultuous applause. 
At nearly fifty years of age, I was now once more before the public with the promise to put on a full head of steam, to rush things, to give double or treble the amount of attractions ever before offered at the museum, and to devote all my own time and services to the enterprise. In return, I asked that the public should give my efforts the patronage they merited, and the public took me at my word. The daily number of visitors at once more than doubled, and my exertions to gratify them with rapid changes and novelties never tired. The announcement that Richards himself again, that I was at last out of the financial entanglement, was variously received in the community. That portion of the press which had followed me with abuse when I was down, under the belief that my case was past recovery, were cherry in allusions to the new state of things, or passed them over without comment. The sycophants always knew I would get up again, and said so at the time. The many and noble journals which had stood by me and upheld me in my misfortunes were of course rejoiced, and their words of sincere congratulation gave me a higher satisfaction than I have power of language to acknowledge. Letters of congratulation came in upon me from every quarter. Friendly hands that had never been withheld during the long period of my misfortune were now extended with a still heartier grip. I never knew till now the warmth and number of my friends. My editorial friend, Mr. Robert Bonner, of the New York Ledger, sincerely congratulated me upon my full and complete restoration. I had some new plays which were adapted from very popular stories which had been written for Mr. Bonner's paper, and I went to him to purchase, if I could, the large cuts he had used to advertise these stories in his street placards. He at once generously offered to lend them to me as long as I wished to use them, and tendered me his services in any way. Mr. Bonner was the boldest of advertisers, following me closely in the field in which I was the pioneer, and to his judicious use of printer's ink he owes the fine fortune which he so worthily deserves and enjoys. Nor must I neglect to state that a large number of my creditors, who held the clock notes, proved very magnanimous in taking into consideration the gross deception which had put me in their power. Not a few of them said to me in substance, You never supposed you had made yourself liable for this debt. You were deluded into it. It is not right that it should be held over you to keep you hopelessly down. Take it and pay me such percentage as, under the circumstances, it is possible for you to pay. But for such men and such consideration, I fear I should never have got on my feet again and of the many who rejoiced in my battered fortune, not a few were of this class of my creditors. My old friend, the Boston Saturday Evening Gazette, which printed a few cheering poetical lines of consolation and hope when I was down, now gave me the following from the same graceful pen, conveying glowing words of congratulation at my rise again. Another word for Barnum. Barnum, your hand the struggle o'er. You face the world and ask no favor. You stand where you have stood before. The old salt hasn't lost its savor. You now can laugh with friends at foes, ne'er heeding Mrs. Grundy's tattle. You've dealt and taken sturdy blows, regardless of the rabble's prattle. Not yours the heart to harbor ill, gainst those who've dealt in trivial jesting. You pass them with the same good will, erst shown when they their wit were testing. You're the same Barnum that we knew, you're good for years, still fit for labor. Be as of old, be bold and true. Honest as man, as friend, as neighbor. At about this period, the following poem was published in a Pottsville, Pennsylvania paper, and copied by many journals of the day. A Health to Barnum 
Companions, fill your glasses round, and drink a health to one, who has few coming after him, to do as he has done, who made a fortune for himself, made fortunes too for many, yet wrong no bosom of a sigh, no pocket of a penny. Come, shout a gallant chorus, and make the glasses ring. Here's health and luck to Barnum, the exhibition king, who lured the Swedish nightingale to western woods to come, who prosperous and happy made the life of little thumb, who oped amusement's golden door so cheaply to the crowd, and taught morality to smile on all his stage aloud. Come, shout a gallant chorus until the glasses ring. Here's health and luck to Barnum, the exhibition king. And when the sad reverses came, as come they may to all, who stood a hero bold and true amid his fortune's fall, who to the utmost yielded up what honor could not keep, then took the field of life again with courage calm and deep. Come, shout a gallant chorus until the glasses dance. Here's health and luck to Barnum, the Napoleon of finance. Yet no, our hero would not look with smiles on such a cup, throw out the wine with water clear, fill the pure crystal up, then rise and greet with deep respect the courage he has shown, and drink to him who well deserves a seat on fortune's throne. Here's health and luck to Barnum, in Elba he has seen, and never may his map of life display a St. Helene. End of chapter 33